Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Happy holidays and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and today we investigate the original meaning of the First Amendment. How much speech did our founders really intend to protect when they enumerated the freedoms of speech and of the press in the Bill of Rights in 1791? The answer? Well, it might surprise you. That is, so long as you believe our guest on today's show. Judd Campbell is an assistant professor of law at the University of Richmond, and he is out with a new provocative article in the Yale Law Journal. And the article argues that most of the speech protected by today's interpretation of the First Amendment might not be protected by a true originalist interpretation of the First Amendment. Say goodbye in that case to Texas versus Johnson. Boy Scouts of America versus Dale, Citizens United versus FEC, and Snyder versus Phelps, not to mention New York Times versus Sullivan, and much else from today's core First Amendment jurisprudence. Professor Campbell's article is titled Natural Rights and the First Amendment, and Harvard Law Professor Cass Sunstein recently wrote that it might well be the most illuminating work on the original understanding of free speech in a generation. In his article, Professor Campbell argues that the Founders' understanding of the freedoms of speech and of the press rested on a multifaceted understanding of natural rights that no longer survives in American constitutional thought, and that these rights were expansive in scope but weak in their legal effect, allowing for restrictions of expression to promote the public good. On today's episode, I speak with Professor Campbell about his article, and it gets quite wonky. Uh, I should say we reach perhaps First Amendment nerd level 1000, so I ask you all to prepare yourselves. We explore some concepts that, while absent from our constitutional discourse today, were central concepts to the founders' understanding of rights. Concepts such as natural rights, positive rights, and inalienable rights, social contract theory, and common law. And we close this conversation by asking ourselves if the argument is true, and the founders really didn't intend the First Amendment to protect as much speech as it does today, what, if anything, should we do about it? This conversation was recorded over the phone. Please enjoy. Judd, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by discussing the origin story for your investigation into the origin story of the First Amendment. What inspired you to look into this history? Well, I was interested in how ideas about speech and press freedoms were changing in the 1790s, uh, and in particular about how partisan developments um, were forcing Republicans to come up with new ideas about speech and press freedoms. Uh, and in particular, the uh, impetus for that shift was juries were being hand-selected by Federalist marshals. Uh, and originally, having juries hand-selected was thought to be a way of protecting rights, that we would have men of wisdom and discernment who would be on the jury, who would be better able to protect uh, property rights in particular, but other forms of rights as well. And what people began to realize in the late 1790s, Jefferson originally in 1797, a full year before the Sedition Act, was that having juries hand-selected by Federalist marshals was actually going to lead to uh, a biased jury. Uh, and in particular, in cases involving seditious libel, the biased jury was likely to find that the publications that were um, hostile to the Adams administration would satisfy the uh, the requirements for uh, false and malicious speech. And so uh, they were beginning to rethink these ideas. And in order to make my case that these ideas were changing in the late 1790s, I had to lay out how people were thinking about speech and press freedoms uh, in the late 1780s when the ratification debates were uh, taking place and Congress first proposed the Bill of Rights. 
Uh, and what I came to realize was there was actually a lot of new things uh, to say about speech and press freedoms that I hadn't anticipated, and in particular, uh, thinking about uh, the interrelationship between natural rights and positive law. Uh, and so that's what, the, uh, that's what the piece really engages with, is how, how is it that the founders thought about speech and press freedoms uh, as natural rights, and what were the implications of that for restrictions on governmental authority. So that's that's really um, the nexus of the piece. Is is uh, uh, I was interested in a, a sort of um, changing views of speech and press freedoms later on, uh, but that got me interested in in where things began. So you say in uh, your article that speech and press freedoms referred in part as you say, to nat- natural rights um, that were expansive in scope but weakened their legal effect. Uh, and you say that this allowed for restrictions of expression to promote the public good. What are natural rights and what are positive rights? Because I think those are important to understand um, if you want to understand your thesis. That's right. So um, we've really lost touch with the uh political philosophy of the founding and the way the founders began thinking about uh, constitutional ideas was to start with an underlying theory of political philosophy. Uh, and, and that underlying theory was social contract theory. Uh, so this will be familiar to some people uh, who are um, aware of Locke's idea of having natural rights. And basically the gist of it is that um, if we want to figure out what it is that government ought to be doing and government ought not to be doing, which is the essential problem of uh, uh, political philosophy, uh, then one way of going about that enterprise is to just ask, well, what would things be like without a government? What what would uh, people, what would lead people who had no government uh, to decide to form a government? And what would be the limitations that they would impose upon doing that? Uh, and so social contract theory is basically a thought experiment. Uh, it's one that tries to ascertain what the proper role of government is. And so the thought experiment begins with the idea that, well, if, even if we didn't have a government, uh, we would have certain liberties. There are things that we can do uh, that don't require a government in order for us to do them. And so uh, when the founders talked about uh, freedom of speech, they didn't necessarily call it freedom of speech. It wasn't a, uh, a technical term of art. Uh, what they would talk about was the freedom of discussion, the freedom of opinion, the freedom uh, of communication. Uh, one of my favorite turns of phrase was the freedom of the tongue. Uh, and the idea was uh, without a government, uh, we would be able to engage in communication with each other. And so Speech was easily identifiable to the founders as a natural right. Uh, And then what social contract theory um, uh, provided, in addition to the idea of natural rights, was some uh, uh, understanding of what it is that humans, when agreeing to join a political society, uh, would – what were the terms that they would agree to? Uh, And so the basic terms of the social contract, as the founders understood it, was that people would agree that the government should try to help protect natural rights, um, but that it was okay for the government to limit uh, people's ability to exercise their natural liberty if doing so was in the interests of the political society. Uh, And so that's the basic starting point um, is this idea of social contract theory. Um, and, and so what the paper does is it's trying to, it's trying to tease out, um, okay, we have these, uh, ability, this ability uh, to engage in speech. We have this countervailing principle that the government can limit speech in the public interest. Um, then we have all this virulent debate about, well, what types of speech restrictions are okay and which types aren't. Uh, and so here, one of the points of the paper is to say, actually, in trying to figure out what types of speech restrictions serve the public interest and which types didn't, there were competing methodologies at the founding. 
And so you have one group uh, that is generally associated with the Federalists who were very elite lawyerly types. And so they wanted to have uh, uh, they wanted us to look to the common law to figure out what the proper limitations on governmental authority were. Uh, and the common law, in general, supported a broad ability of the government, um, not, not unlimited, but a broad power of the government to punish speech that was uh, malicious and false, that was defamatory of the government. And so uh, if you could show that somebody was engaged in a false and malicious attack um, on uh, the Adams administration, for instance, uh, then you could be prosecuted consistent with the common law. Um, but there's another in, uh, understanding of how we would ascertain the limits on governmental authority that the Jeffersonians championed, and that was we don't need these law, elite lawyerly types to tell us what's in the public interest. Uh, we can decide for ourselves as a people what sort of speech restrictions are permissible. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, one of the points of the paper is to say, look, there's a starting point that is common to the founding generation, or at least the founding era elites who are writing about this. Uh, and that starting point is an understanding of social contract theory and natural rights. Um, but actually, there's a lot of diversity in founding era thought as well, um, because they had different ways of cashing out exactly what the proper limitations on governmental authority were. Yeah, so one of the things that I think many people think about natural rights is the, these are a trump card on government. But from reading your paper, the founding era elites didn't think that. That's right. We tend to think about natural rights either uh, in terms of like a Thomistic, Catholic uh, view, Catholic view, or as a libertarian view. Um, uh, natural rights at the founding are actually. Uh, a starting point for everybody. Um, it's not limited uh, to people who have an understanding of rights as de uh, uh, derived from God, and it's not uh, limited to people who have um, uh, sort of proto-libertarian views. Uh, and so there's actually some diversity in founding era thought about uh, what natural rights are. But in general, natural rights rhetoric develops um, uh, in the uh, late 17th century as a uh, forceful argument for having popular control over restrictions of human uh, liberty and property, um, and uh, as opposed to having uh, monarchical control over those. And so the thrust of natural rights reasoning in the late 17th century, and this is what Locke is uh, writing about, is a defense of parliamentary sovereignty as opposed to monarchical power. It's really not about the individual versus the state. It's about parliament versus the king. And that's the same view of natural rights that underpins the movement for American independence. So the American argument is we, can, we have these natural rights, and therefore we cannot be controlled uh, in the exercise of those natural rights by an assembly to which we do not have representation, in which we do not have representation. And so again, the argument that the founders were making during the revolution in favor of, the, uh, of their natural rights and in defense of their natural rights was all about representation. It wasn't about individual versus the state. It was about who has uh, control within uh, control over governmental decisions. So let me let me know if I'm getting this right. Uh, Thomas Paine said that a natural right is an animal right that you have in state of in a state of nature. Uh, so in a state of nature, you can uh, speak freely. You can, you know, I guess, create for yourself property or a sphere of influence. Um, yada yada yada. But then when we enter into a contract with a community, social contract theory. Um, we sort of give up those natural rights so long as there's not a monarchy? Is that my understanding? There are different ways of thinking about it. So um, uh, there's not one common account for uh, exactly how the social contract, uh, exactly what it does with respect to natural rights, although one of the things that I point out in the article is that for the most part there is a common endpoint, which is that natural liberty is 
um, uh, is regulable in the public interest. So on one account, uh, when you enter in the social contract, you give up your natural rights, or at least you give up some of your natural rights. Um, so long as there is this, yeah, so long as you can justify it in the public good. But that seems like a hole to me that you could drive a truck through. Uh, you have in your article a quote from Joseph Priestley who, who said there's a real difficulty in determining what general rules respecting the extent of the gov- uh, power of government or of governors are most conducive to the public good. And I read that. I'm like, well, duh. Uh, you know, if you say a trump card for any natural rights argument is the p- public good, then – you could, I mean, the Soviet Union, Stalin made arguments, you know, that their program, programs and uh, their limitations on civil liberties were in the public good. I mean, that's that's sort of the the fallback of any tyranny. That's right, and so uh, uh, the arguments that are made um, uh, around the public good are often ones that justify suppression on the basis of. Uh, some sort of government effort at censorship over dissent. Uh, and so the, this is um, a sort of recognition that I think underpins the movement in free speech law in the 20th century, a sort of recognition that the existing understanding of, uh, of speech and press freedoms as being regulable uh, under the police powers was underprotective. Uh, and so this is what, you know, Holmes and Brandeis um, uh, Brennan and so forth are are um, are pushing against in the early free speech decisions, um, and uh, and so I you know I don't I don't disagree with that at all. But that is a recognition of I mean the the problem here is that the founders um, they were operating within a different mindset. So for them, uh, the basic problem was not having control over restrictions of natural liberty. Uh, and so when some when the king would try to engage in um, prosecutions um, of uh, those who were critical of the government, for instance, uh, the prosecutions would have to go to a jury, uh, and the jury was composed of colonists who were sympathetic to those who are making the criticisms, and so the jury would nullify um, any sort of effort of prosecution. Uh, and so for the founders, um, the way they're thinking about this is uh, what we really need is we need to maintain control over our own restrictions of natural liberty. Uh, and for them, that was enough, uh, because for them, the threat uh, was abroad. The threat was somebody else imposing um, uh, restrictions on speech, uh, restrictions of speech on them. Uh, whereas once we get to the 1790s, and this is where the inspiration for the paper really came about, uh, the Jeffersonians start to realize, hey, wait a minute, uh, restrictions on speech don't just come from abroad. Sometimes they come from within our own society, and we really need to rethink some of these ideas. Um, and so I think Jefferson and Madison really uh, recognize exactly what you just said, that there's there's a, a truck-sized hole in the existing uh, uh, theory, uh, and it it's a truck-sized hole that allows for, um, uh, uh, you know, very speech-suppressive uh, rules like the Sedition Act, um, and and so uh, you know this is um, this is something that uh, that the founders became aware of, um, uh, but I think went into the drafting of the First Amendment without a good appreciation for exactly uh, how big that hole was. So the main concern of the founders in the 1770s and the 1780s was self-representation. And they felt that if they could get that representation, then that would be enough of a check on tyranny. And um, to the extent that that self-representation made laws in the public good, it was sort of almost unquestionable their right to do that. That's right. So that's not the only thing that's happening with respect to rights, but that is overwhelmingly the dominant aspect of American uh, rights discourse. So when Madison is pushing for the Bill of Rights, his primary argument for the Bill of Rights is these, uh, this, uh, the enumeration of these rights will help educate Americans and make them better aware of our rights so that we can, through the political process, uh, vindicate those rights, which, of course, to us is a very foreign way of thinking. Usually when we're thinking about rights, we're thinking of 
checks on the political process uh, that are imposed through certain separation of powers, uh, particularly through the judiciary. That's not the primary argument for Madison. So the confusing thing for me is that even still at this time, though, they thought that those rights could be bounded by things that the legislature determines are in the public good. For example, you know, we talk about the enumeration of rights in the Bill of Rights. They didn't, they thought, you know, Alexander Hamilton famously asked in Federalist uh, 84, and you talk about this in, in your piece, why declare the things that shall not be done, which there is no power to do? I, I guess a, a way of rephrasing this question is, the, so the founders had an idea of natural rights, but they also had the separate concept of certain natural rights that are inalienable rights. And, well, and that's right. So there, there are, uh, I think, two things that are happening here. So one is that uh, the founders had a sense that what sorts of limitations um, on governmental authority uh, should exist. So these are limitations um, where uh, an, exercise, an existence of a power or a exercise of a power in a certain way would not promote the public good. What those were were uh, uh, understood to be uh, derivable through custom. So we could have a public debate about legislation that is or isn't in the public interest. Um, that's absolutely true. So uh, sort of what you just said, where you're starting out the comment, I think is right, that there is authority for the legislature to have debates about what speech regulations promote the public interest. But at the same time, the founders understood that, well, we had actually had a lot of these debates already, and we had come to recognize that there were certain restrictions on governmental power um, because, and the reason why those existed is because we had already had a appreciation that those restrictions um, were necessary in order to promote uh, the public good. And so... And would those be inalienable rights? Uh, sometimes. Uh, sometimes those are one and the same. Uh, so the um, the idea of inalienable rights um, uh, is uh, that when people are entering into a social contract, there are some things that they cannot sacrifice because in order to sacrifice those things, they would have to part uh, with their humanity, that there are some things which we just cannot control. Um, and so, for instance, um, you cannot, uh, the way the founders thought about uh, the freedom of opinion uh, is you cannot control your own thoughts. And so there is, uh, it would be tyrannical for uh, us in a social contract to give up to the government an authority over what we think. Uh, and so um, uh, the notion is, uh, you know, if I see uh, some object or I uh, perceive um, uh, some hostility on the part of the government or whatever it is that I'm thinking, uh, I have no volitional control over that. Uh, and so uh, the founders used that idea, the inalienability of, of one's thoughts, to justify uh, a, an ability to speak what it is that you were thinking. Uh, and so that's an important part of it. But not unless what you were thinking was untrue. So the, that, that's right, although um, the, key, the key point here is less on whether it's true or not and more on your intent. So it, the focus here is on, so remember, the, the idea of uh, freedom of the mind is focused on the non-volitional aspect of your thoughts, that I don't have control over what I'm thinking. But I do have control over whether I lie about what I'm thinking. And so as long as you are uh, speaking your thoughts with a good intention uh, and truthfully conveying what you're thinking, then the founders thought that that could not be restricted, that that was part of the inalienable right of speech. So it not only it had to be false, but it also had to have a malicious intent. That's right. So it, it had to be false. Um, uh, it, it, and it had to have uh, some sort of bad intent. Um, and so, the, uh, of course, the actual malice standard in some ways um, picks up on that, although uh, uh, one of the debates that's happening at the founding is the extent to which you can presume malice uh, simply through what the words say. 
um, which is uh, uh, something that um, for much of American history, the simple fact that you had said a certain set of uh, defamatory words was itself proof of malice. Uh, and so the, that's what the actual malice standard is backing away from. Um, but this is an important limitation because uh, it, it meant that when um, people are arguing uh, in the late 1790s about uh, whether certain folks have committed sedition or not, um, what you're going to have is you're going to have a jury that has to ask questions about intent. And the Sedition Act in particular uh, specifically said uh, that uh, individuals had a right to have a general jury verdict uh, and that there was a truth defense. Uh, and so you could come forward with evidence that what you were saying uh, was not your own manipulations but was actually or contrivances but was actually uh, true. And that ends up um, uh, being where the problem of jury selection intersects with Jeffersonian thought. So if you have a jury that's hostile uh, to Jeffersonians, then of course they're going to perceive that the criticisms of the government are made maliciously. Uh, and, and so the, the basic problem here is um, even if you're focused on uh, malicious um, uh, speech and you're limiting governmental power to uh, restrict malicious speech, you can still have uh, massive amounts of um, uh, suppression of actually well-intentioned speech because often the government isn't actually um, – the decision makers are biased. Uh, and I think that's the same concern that's undergirding uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, that you have a southern jury in Alabama – who has to decide on all the factual issues at issue in um, uh, a case involving defamation uh, uh, by the NAACP and other civil rights organizations against a Southern uh, official. And so there's a recognition on uh, the Supreme Court's part, this is not in the opinion, but it's very much in the background of the case, um, that we need speech we need rules with respect to the protection of speech that help protect us um, uh, not just based on uh, what rules would be um, best in a perfect society where the governmental officials were always doing the right thing, uh, but what rules do we need in a society where we recognize that the governmental officials and juries often don't do the right thing. Often they have their own biases that would lead to uh, the suppression of actually well-intentioned speech. Uh, and so this is one of the, um, I think, most difficult aspects of trying to sort of asking the question, what do we do with the history? Because it's very clear that the founders were okay uh, as a general matter with uh, restricting speech that was um, uh, false and malicious. Um, but they also thought that there should be uh, only speech restrictions that promoted the public good. And so we might come over the course of history to think that certain power over false and malicious speech may in the end not actually be in the public good because it chills too much useful speech. Uh, it uh, gives the government too much authority to suppress dissent and so forth. Um, and. Uh, and so I think this is a this is a challenging aspect for thinking about um, uh, the relevance of history. So when I, f you know, first read about your article before I actually read the article, the implication to me was that if you want to hold an originalist interpretation of the First Amendment, much of First Amendment jurisprudence, or at least modern First Amendment jurisprudence, would have to go out the window. Texas v. Johnson, you write, Boy Scouts of America v. Dale, Citizens United v. FEC. You don't say these need to go out the window, but you do say that that could be the implication. Snyder v. Phelps is another one. But in, this, in the course of this conversation, my thinking is that the only thing that would really have to go out the window would be current defamation law. One could argue that Snyder v. Phelps, um, the Westboro Baptist Church in that case, was engaged in expressive activity that was the true expression of one's own views. 
you know, cabin, of course, by well-intentioned. I don't know if it was well-intentioned, but who defines what's well-intentioned? It seems to me that perhaps United States v. Alvarez would have to go out because in that case, the Stolen Valor Act prohibited people from lying about certain veteran statuses. But most of the other stuff, absent defamation law and out-and-out lies, could probably stay. Texas v. Johnson probably could. You could argue Boy Scouts of America v. Dale probably could. Am I wrong there? Well, I think it depends on what sort of originalist um, uh, or view of uh, the relevance of history to modern constitutional uh, doctrine, what sort of ideas you have about those methodological issues. Um, so if your view is that what we ought to do today in terms of uh, constitutional law, the sort of restrictions on governmental authority that are enforceable in court, uh, if your view is that that set of legal doctrines ought to be exactly the same as the set of legal doctrines that existed at the founding, um, I think a lot of modern law has to go. Uh, And so there's no indication in the historical record that anything uh, that we would call expressive conduct, um, so not not verbal speech, but uh, uh, actions that in some way convey ideas or promote speech in some second-order sense, uh, political donations or uh, association with others. Flag burning, protests outside of funerals. That's right. There's no indication that those sorts of activities would have been covered by this inalienable right. So remember, when we're thinking about what it is that we're um, uh, not able to part with as part of our basic humanity, um, uh, the focus here is on our thoughts. Uh, And so conveying those thoughts through uh, verbal expression is really what the founders were focused on. Now, you could, of course, make arguments that um, actually when creating a social contract, uh, people would uh, sacrifice um, a whole lot less uh, than just uh, the you know control over thoughts. They would actually uh, not be willing to sacrifice uh, control over their expressive actions either, or not sacrifice total governmental authority. Um, that's fine. Uh, those are perfectly fine arguments to make. But the way that the founders would have resolved those arguments is by asking questions about what would be in the public good. So uh, this gets it back to exactly the Richard Price quotation that you pointed out before, which is that this is exactly the issue. What sorts of restrictions on governmental power are actually in the public good? Um, And so I think that uh, if you want to be an originalist in the sense of just making modern law exactly what the law was uh, in the 1790s, um, there would be very speech modern speech doctrine would look very different. Um, uh, that isn't the only type of originalism now. So there are plenty of originalists now. Well, you could you could argue your own trump card in saying, you know, no, over time we've determined that laws restricting speech because of the chilling effect they have are not in the public good and that any, you know, justification for those laws in the immediate future would be ameliorated by the long terms we could we concerns we'd have over you know the marketplace of ideas, public debate, political debate, things of that nature. And there was actually one founder who did argue that. That was um, what was her name? I got it somewhere here in my notes. Elizabeth Priestley, she said, uh, government power to regulate harmful speech once conceded may be extended to every opinion which insidious despotism may think fit to hold out as dangerous. Was she, a, and she was, she wrote that in 1800. Was she a minority opinion then? Because that seems to be our modern libertarian approach to the First Amendment discussed, what, what is that, 217 years ago? Yes, it, it's, um, it's a, uh, definitely a minority opinion, uh, but it's a prevalent uh, opinion at the founding and one that I think needs to be wrestled with. So the way that we know it's a minority opinion is that it is not the position that the Federalists took. The Federalists took the opposite position, that actually regulating sedition was in the public interest because individual seditious statements 
were actually efforts to misdirect public opinion. They were trying to, people were trying to mislead the public, uh, saying false uh, and malicious things against the government. Uh, and then the dominant Republican position against the Sedition Act um, was that uh, sedition prosecutions ought to happen, but they ought to happen at the state level, not at the federal level. Uh, and that responded to the problem of jury selection that I was mentioning earlier, because uh, then you wouldn't have a jury that was hand-selected by an appointee of the Adams administration. Instead, you would have a jury that was selected by the state sheriff. And so that would disconnect the sort of partisan interest in the person who was selecting the jury and then the object of the criticism. And so the, the Republicans really were, um, uh, in the main, not arguing for this libertarian understanding, but there are plenty of people at the founding who did have a more libertarian understanding of speech. Uh, Priestley is one of them. The most famous, of course, is James Madison. In the Virginia Report of 1800, Madison articulates a similar idea that having restrictions of even false and malicious speech can overall uh, discourage enough useful speech that it ends up being a, a governmental uh, power that is not conducive to the public good. But I want to talk about Madison's report on the Virginia resolutions, because even there, and in this case, he's talking about press, which is a little bit different than the freedom of speech, and we can get to that. But he said, the press has exerted a freedom in canvassing the merits and measures of public men of every description, which has not been confined to the strict limits of the common law. On this footing, the freedom of press has stood on this footing, yet it stands. But e so even there, when, you know, reciting this great peon to press freedoms, he said, he cabins it by saying, though that those freedoms that have not been confined to the strict limits of the common law. So is even this libertarian Madisonian approach at that time concerned about the common law restrictions? Well, I think Madison would say that the, uh, the common law is relevant, so we don't ignore the common law. Um, but Madison was definitely of this uh, less lawyerly uh, interpretive tradition. So he was thinking about what the scope of uh, constitutional rules uh, was and what the prop sort of what restrictions would or would not be in the public interest is something that uh, we as a political society can determine for ourselves. We don't need judges to tell us um, uh, about the uh, l proper limitations on governmental authority. Uh, and so um, that was all part of Madison's justification for having state legislatures play a part in trying to figure out what the proper limitations on governmental power over speech and press were, rather than leaving it to the Supreme Court, uh, which was the Federalist position. The Federalist position was, these are questions of law, uh, we should just leave it to the Supreme Court to determine um, what governmental power does or doesn't exist. Uh, and, of course, uh, that position was um, useful to them because the Supreme Court was controlled by Federalist judges who had uh, relatively conservative views about um, governmental authority over speech. Let's talk about the distinction between freedom of speech or the freedom of tongue and the freedom of the press. James Madison explained in his, to his congressional colleagues in 1794, opinions are not the objects of legislation. However, when it comes to the freedom of press, Jefferson classified this as a fundamental positive right. So can you explain what positive rights are and how the framers thinking about positive rights versus natural or today we call them negative rights uh, would have borne out in reality and, and the other thing that confuses me, too, from reading your paper is that you write that positive law should reflect and conform with natural law. So it's very confusing to me. And if you could flesh it out, that would be appreciated. Yeah, this is one of the most difficult aspects of understanding founding era thought. And it's difficult because, uh, first of all, we don't think in this way. Um, we don't start by thinking about questions of natural rights or social contracts. Yeah, you say this is a forgotten way of constitutional thinking. We leave that to political science departments or to um, religion departments. Uh, 
And then the other the other thing that's so tricky about this is that the founders just weren't in agreement on the exact relationship between uh, natural rights and and positive rights. So um, on one uh, understanding, um, uh, you can see how the freedom of the press, the ability to print and publish, uh, would be a natural right. And so sometimes uh, the founders did talk about natural rights in that way. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you don't need a government in order to operate a printing press. So remember, when we're thinking about what natural rights are, we're thinking about, well, what are those things that we could do without a government? Well, you can't have a jury trial without a government because the jury is a governmental institution. You can't have a right of habeas corpus without a government because the government is the entity that is holding the person uh, or uh, providing the remedy for release of the person. And this is one of the things that was a big revelation for me. You write in 18th century English, the press was a reference to printing. Not and and did not refer to journalists until the 19th century. And today we think, you know, journalists often say, you know, we're one of the few occupations that it's explicit, explicitly protected in the uh, in the Bill of Rights. Lobbyists might say that they're also explicitly protected in the right to petition, but that's not how 18th century founding elites would have thought of that freedom. That's right. So the way that we could think about uh, the freedom of the press is the freedom of printers. Uh, and publishers. It's not a freedom of journalists um, because there there really wasn't uh, such a thing as a, a journalist in the conventional sense, and that was not uh, used in the uh, just the founding area idiom. Freedom of the press was uh, not used in that way. Um, so on on one conception, we do have. Um, uh, a freedom of publishing that could be understood as a natural right. Um, but there's a different way that the founders often talked about um, uh, the freedom of the press, and that was as a particular set of restrictions on governmental power. And so in that sense, freedom of the press isn't a natural right. Rather, it's a positive right. It's a right about what sort of limits exist on governmental authority. It's a right that's defined in terms of what the government can do or cannot do. And that is what positive rights were. And so uh, what were those uh, a set of restrictions on governmental power? Well, uh, the most important was that the government couldn't license printers. It couldn't say, in order to have uh, uh, operate a printing press, you have to get a license first from us. Uh, another important restriction was that the government wasn't able to uh, have a censor who would review the publications before they were published in order to uh, make, make sure that they conformed with whatever the existing law was. Uh, another important restriction for the founders was uh, the idea that juries should have uh, the ability to decide these questions of intent that we've been talking about. Uh, so rather than having judges uh, who were, of course, in the colonial period, royal appointees, rather than having judges decide whether somebody had act, acted with a requisite malice uh, to commit sedition, we would have juries, that is, people who are from the community, who weren't appointed by the king, who got to decide those questions. And so there's a whole set of specific uh, legal restrictions on governmental authority that are encompassed within this term freedom of the press. And so that's what Jefferson's referring to when he's talking about a, a positive right um, uh, conception of press liberty. It's a, uh, a specific set of uh, rules that limit what the government can or can't do with respect to the freedom of the press. And informed by historical concerns, thinking back to the Zanger trial, to Milton's Areopagitica and the concerns over... Uh, you know, English licensing, licensing in the 17th century, but they didn't think of this freedom as coming from a state of nature. They said, we've learned that it's in the public good to place these restrictions on government. Therefore, I guess you have to say, use the word granted. We're granting you these freedoms because it's part of a well-functioning democracy. That's exactly right. So the, the method for figuring out what the scope of the positive rights was uh, was a tradition-based method. It was a common law-based method. Um, but I think it's very important here to note that uh, recognizing press freedom as a positive right 
did not mean that you couldn't have a debate about what sort of restrictions were or were not in the public good. So I think this is just, I think people misunderstand this aspect of the founding era debates when they say that the only meaning of the First Amendment was that there was a rule against prior restraints. This is a common view uh, that uh, the first of, all the First Amendment did was uh, uh, institute what's often called a Blackstonian understanding of uh, pre uh, freedom of press as a ban on uh, press licensing and on uh, prior restraints. And I think that's um, that's too limited a conception because the founders also had an understanding of the freedom of uh, speech and press as a natural right. And so they also had a way of talking about these liberties um, uh, in terms of whether or not additional types of governmental authority over speech and press were in the public good. Uh, and so I, it, in some ways, the paper, this gets back to a point you were making earlier about uh, uh, sort of how the paper is often uh, understood or read, the paper is not just a defense of the Federalist view. It's not saying the Federalists were, the, were right, uh, because there's an entirely different way of thinking about speech and press freedoms at the founding uh, that the Jeffersonians had that was very much consistent with um, uh, understanding of speech and press freedoms as natural rights that wouldn't have limited uh, the meaning of those rights to the specific legal rules that had already been recognized. They would allow for the recognition of new rules that would come uh, through um, uh, sort of debate about the popular good, public good or what constitutes the public good. We would have these debates in legislatures about what the public good was. We would have these debates in newspapers and in state legislatures and so forth. And over time, we would come to appreciate that there were new positive rules that would then restrict governmental power. This is really Madison's idea here, is we can't cut off the debate by just looking to what the old legal rules were. We need to allow a, a sort of more robust debate so that we can allow the traditions of legal protections to evolve over time. But the, So that idea that we could evolve our understanding of which sort of speech protections are in the public good, the founding era elite thought that that would happen through the legislature. But our First Amendment revolution happened through the courts, beginning with Abrams's, uh, beginning with uh, Holmes's descent in, in Abrams. So that's not how the founders intended for this to go. That's right. This is a very different understanding of who institutionally it is that is best uh, uh, positioned to delineate restrictions on governmental authority. So for the founding era conception of the judicial role would have been, yes, judges have a role to play in checking legislative power, but they only have a role to check legislative power when there is some already established limit that is provided by uh, uh, either the Constitution itself or by some well-established tradition that would limit constitutional uh, uh, power of government otherwise to restrict speech. Uh, and so it's only once we get to the, um, uh, the 1920s and 30s that we start to see new theories of judicial review that are more robust um, that offer some justification for additional judicial scrutiny of uh, speech restrictions that doesn't exist with respect to other limitations on natural liberty. Um, in the early uh, 1900s, there's no distinct speech doctrine. So you have, if your speech is limited in a way um, that uh, you think is based on some sort of governmental partiality or an arbitrary restriction on your liberty, uh, you can make a constitutional claim, but your claim is going to be adjudicated under uh, what effectively was substantive due process doctrine at the time. Um, because there wasn't anything special about uh, speech as opposed to any other form of liberty. Uh, and so it's only once we get into uh, the famous footnote four in Caroline Products about how we protect not only discrete and insular minorities, but we have special judicial protection for the enumerated rights 
uh, in the Bill of Rights. It's only once we get into that enterprise that judges start playing a more uh, prominent role, uh, and in, indeed now the uh, the most prominent role uh, in delineating governmental power over speech. Yeah, you talk in your paper about how Madison, I think he, how he explained the judiciary, and he said that it has certain discretionary powers with respect to um, interpreting the means by which government institutes the will of the people, um, but not whether those the the purpose or the outcome um, is constitutional. Is that a correct reading? That's right. So so judges um, uh, judges at the founding the way of thinking uh, about judging in American uh, constitutional history up until the 20th century is to recognize that it's uh, very formalist. So judges um, weren't allowed to make sort of balancing type judgments about what was in the public interest or not, um, and they weren't able to make uh, inquiries into whether the motives of the legislature were good or not. Uh, And so it's only in the 20th century that we start to see um, more inquiries into legislative intent. We see uh, doctrines start to adopt tiers of scrutiny to try to interrogate whether the government has really been pursuing this uh, legislation for the right sorts of reasons. Uh, and it's only then that we also start to see um, more robust judicial balancing, where we, we say, uh, is does the government have a really good justification that's sufficient to um, uh, overtake the uh, speech interest at play? So then you would, you would argue that, for example, the Institute's for justices um, push to encourage what they call judicial engagement would not be an originalist interpretation of how judging was meant to go according to the founding era elites. That's right. So again, it's not to say that there wasn't judicial review at the founding. There very much was judicial review at the founding, but the form of judicial review was more limited. The form of judicial review was to apply clear, established rules. It wasn't to create new rules that would better protect constitutional values. Uh, and so that's what modern First Amendment does. It, we, we, in New York Times versus Sullivan, create a new rule because we determine the existing libel law isn't adequate to protect the free speech interest. Uh, that's the sort of move that is made in modern First Amendment law uh, that would not have been made at the founding because the conception of the judicial role at the founding was uh, that they should only be enforcing uh, existing law, um, which again included traditions that had been uh, well established. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't to say that there couldn't be the development of new constitutional uh, positive rights that would protect speech, um, but it's just that the the first mover had to be the political process. It couldn't be that judges were the ones who were taking the first steps to establish limitations on governmental authority. If you have the time, I want to ask you, uh, I realize I've I've gone over (laughs) what I told you, but but I want to talk about some potential criticisms Um, because there have been pieces of scholarship written, uh, including recently by uh, NYU professor Stephen Solomon in his book Revolutionary Dissent that argue that while there might have not been freedom of speech and law, uh, this is both pre-First Amendment and one could argue post-First Amendment, depending on what your conception of the freedom of speech is, he argues that there was freedom of speech in practice. He, he argues that newspapers operated as, a, as if the law of seditious libel did not exist. Americans built effigies, wrote pamphlets, sang songs, and gab- gathered at liberty trees. Um, so while on the one hand, they, the founding era elites might have thought of this, at, there to be more restrictions, uh, the people in practice acted as though these restrictions didn't exist. Is, is there merit to that argument? Uh, there is. I think that this is, um, this is part of the challenge of figuring out what to do uh, uh, with conflicts within founding-era thought. And so uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the paper is to embrace that and to say, um, look, even though uh, there are um, some common points of agreement among the founders, 
that speech is a natural right, that there are certain sets of positive um, rights that uh, impose more uh, sort of determinate legal restrictions on governmental authority, even even though there are these points of agreement among the founders, there are virulent disagreements about exactly what sort of uh, public debate um, ought to be happening free of governmental control. Uh, and so I don't uh, in any way want to disagree. Um, uh, I don't want to argue in favor of there being some uniform view of exactly what sorts of speech restrictions at the founding did or didn't promote the public good because there were virulent disagreements about that issue. So there are people um, uh, in uh, England, uh, sort of the radical Whigs uh, in the 1770s, particularly in response to um, uh, controversy between the king and a, a Whig legislator uh, named John Wilkes, who had begun to articulate a theory of speech and press freedoms that was more libertarian. Uh, and uh, and some people were then acting on that, arguing that there should be more virulent uh, criticisms of government. Uh, and so um, I, I want to embrace the evidence, uh, and, and hopefully um, uh, the paper effectively conveys that, that I want to embrace the evidence um, in favor of a more uh, robust public understanding uh, of speech and press freedoms. Um, people who thought that uh, power over uh, seditious libel, for instance, uh, was more dangerous than it was useful. Um, and, and so that I, I see that evidence as not inconsistent with the paper, but rather reinforces that uh, actually there were people who had different understandings of the scope of gover- the proper scope of governmental power uh, over speech and press. Yeah, well, I mean, this discussion about the history of the First Amendment in many ways isn't new. Um, Robert Levy, I believe, I believe that's his name. Let me refer to my notes here. Uh, no, Leonard Levy, excuse me. Yeah, Le- Leonard Levy it wrote, uh, what is it, like over, over 50 years ago, The Legacy of Suppression, Freedom of Speech and Press in Early American History, where he, he more or less argued that the founders had a, you know, circumspect view of of press freedoms, and it was limited largely to prohibiting prior restraints, as you mentioned earlier, and that they could um, restrict ideas that they thought harmful, including attacks on, on the government. And uh, Leonard Levy you know, reluctantly came to this conclusion, and it was a conclusion that Justice Hugo Black said was probably one of the most devastating blows that has been delivered against civil liberty in America for a long time. But it's also a view that the professor revised in 1985 um, when he you know, revised the article or revised the book to um, with the new title, Emergence of a Free Press. And he revised it in large part because of the point that Stephen Solomon made in his book, Revolutionary Descent, which is that he found that newspapers in practice were scorchingly critical of the government. And that um, in his previous article, he had been focused on legal theory at the expense of practical reality. That's right. And so... um uh, what I want to do in this paper is take that insight and actually apply it to the constitutional debate as well. So one of the things that Levy did not do in the 1985 book is he did not back away from any of his conclusions with respect to the meaning of the First Amendment. So all of his arguments about the meaning of the First Amendment remain the same. And the thing that he backed away from in the uh, in the 85 book, in the revision 25 years later, um, was that there was actually a lot of disagreement within America about the proper scope of, uh, of governmental power over speech and press freedoms. So he recognized that, yeah, actually there was uh, a sort of difference of opinion over these questions, um, but on the constitutional issue, he stuck to his guns. Uh, And so what I want to say in this uh, article is, well, actually, even on the constitutional issue, um, it's not so clear, uh, because not only do we have people who are making these arguments about the legal meaning of the First Amendment, uh, the Federalists who are pointing to the common law as the proper source of uh, figuring out what the limitations on governmental authority are, but we have another interpretive tradition uh, at the founding, uh, one that looks more to 
popular understandings uh, are legislative understandings of what is it is uh, in the common good, uh, as opposed to just what it, uh, judges have told us um, about uh, the proper scope of speech and press freedoms. And so, uh, you know, that that view, um, I think, uh, complicates even further uh, the history that that Levy had uh, presented originally in the legacy of suppression. So I guess by way of closing, my question is what, you know, what do we do with your article? It seems to be that its greatest contribution is an understanding of how natural law and positive law fit into an originalist understanding of the First Amendment. And in that way, I think it sort of departs from Northwestern's Henry Schofield's uh, work in the early part of this, the 20th century, which I, I think came to a lot of the same conclusions as yours, um, but maybe in a slightly different different way. How should judges interpret it, this history? Um, and, you know, is it not just the First Amendment jurisprudence that would need to be revised in order to make it consistent, but almost our entire theory of judging? Well, I, I don't have... Uh any normative take in the paper uh, on exactly uh, what to do with the history. So the, the primary mode that I write in is as a historian. So I want to recover uh, how folks thought 200-plus uh, years ago. Um, I want to help illuminate how that differs um, uh, from how we think uh, and offer some teasing suggestions about how that might matter today uh, without taking a firm position. So I think it really depends on what we think about the proper role of history uh, in figuring out what sort of uh, constitutional rules uh, should or shouldn't apply today. Um, uh, my own view here is that uh, history is important. It's a um, uh, it's a often a starting point uh, for American constitutional in interpretation uh, that it has been for uh, for 200 uh, plus years, uh, and that we ought to take it seriously. But that it's not the end point. Uh, that we have to consider um, not just where things began, but also how they've evolved over time. Uh, and so, new lessons that we've learned from the intervening history, I think, can be incorporated. Uh, into our uh, understanding of what restrictions on speech do or don't promote the uh, public good in ways that the founders may not have appreciated. Uh, so so that, in that sense, that's our... my own that's my own take. But I I think that whatever um, uh, whatever use of history uh, uh, one wants to make uh, depends on your uh, interpretive theory. It depends on exactly what type of constitution we have. Um, and how uh, how history matters to that that constitution, uh, and that of course is not a, as you say it's not a debate that's limited to the speech and press freedoms. That's an important debate uh, that cuts across all constitutional issues. Yeah. So on the one hand, you could argue that our modern jurisprudence is requires sort of like a living constitution uh, interpretation, uh, and that to have an, a true originalist interpretation would be to see a you know much greater restriction on the freedoms of speech and of the press that is unless you view the founding era elites restrictions um, cabin to the public good as being allowed to be expanded as and intended to be expanded as we as a society saw evolved within our understanding of the public good I think that's right. I think the real challenge for modern speech doctrine isn't that we have uh, developed some new rules. I think that would have been understood as part of the enterprise of uh, uh, of um, uh, developing legal traditions over time that then become entrenched and become recognized as fundamental. That's that's the very essence of English constitutionalism uh, that the Americans inherited. What, what would be so challenging um, for the founders about modern doctrine, and this is something we've, we've touched on, is the idea that judges would be the ones who are pushing the change. Not legislatures. That's a new development. Not, not legislatures and popular assemblies and 
um, uh, and public debate at large, but um, rather uh, elite lawyers are the ones who do, are developing new rules. Uh, at the founding, there was um, uh, one side that was championing the views of elite lawyers, but it was in defense of the existing law. It wasn't in defense of the creation of new rules that would promote a value uh, like the public good. Uh, and so that that is a novel development. Um, but I'll say that is a novel development that, uh, first of all, is not limited to speech and press freedoms. That cuts across all areas of yeah. constitutional law. Uh, and it's a development that has largely been accepted by the public at large uh, ever since Brown. Uh, and so um, uh, we, of course, have virulent debates about whether certain types of judicial decisions are uh, are right or wrong. Um, but for the most part, we now as a society uh, uh, and as a legal profession have accepted the supremacy of the Supreme Court uh, in determining what the Constitution means. Uh, and so um, that's uh, that's not a defense uh, of of judicial supremacy. I'm just um, uh, saying that that's that's an issue that's much bigger than speech and press freedoms uh, in particular. It's an issue that um, I, I think uh, um, reflects a very different attitude toward the judiciary uh, than what we had for uh, most of American constitutional history. Well, Professor Campbell, I think we'll leave it at that. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I thank you for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. That was University of Richmond Assistant Professor of Law, Judd Campbell. His article is Natural Rights in the First Amendment, and it can be found in the November 2017 issue of the Yale Law Journal. Before I sign off today, I want to remind everyone that there is, of course, still time to support this podcast before the end of the year. You can do so with a tax-deductible donation to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, which makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy what we do every other week, please consider giving to FIRE this month. Donations of any size can be made at thefire.org, and we certainly appreciate any support you might be able to offer. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and it is edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show using the voicemail at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. Until next time, happy holidays, and I thank you again for listening. Thank you.